What do the Hamden County Sheriff's Office, local area police departments, and local councils on aging all have in common? They are the three partnerships that form the Hamden County Triad Program, created by Sheriff Nick Kochi to provide local seniors in Hamden County safe, healthy, and free services. This winter, the Sheriff's Department is hosting a Sand for Seniors program to offer free buckets of sand to senior citizens as a preventative measure for use on sidewalks, driveways, and walkways. For other triad services available, call 413-858-0060. The ideas and opinions expressed in this show do not reflect the views of WHMP or Saga Communications. This show may contain subject matter not suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. The purpose of life is to discover your gift. The work of life is to develop it. The meaning of life is to give your gift away. David Viscott. Hi, I'm Lisa Riley, and each week we're here to share the stigmas and narratives from those who've been impacted by the criminal justice system, the criminal justice system itself, the reality of life behind the wall, the people and organizations committed to bringing positive change, and the inspiring stories of those who are hustling to prove that failure isn't final. This is The Hustler Files. Welcome, everyone, to this week's The Hustler Files. We've invited back our friend, attorney Ryan Schiff, and joining him today is one of his colleagues, Melissa Celli, and they're here to break down for us the proceedings that we're not familiar with that take place that we've seen on TV and film, but we really don't know that much about, and that is about the subject of parole. So, Ryan, welcome back to The Hustler Files. Melissa, welcome. Welcome to The Hustler Files. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you. Okay, so let's start with letting our listeners know a little bit more about you, Melissa, since you haven't joined us in the past. Why don't you give us a little bit of background on yourself? Well, my legal career has been sort of all over the place. When I graduated, I was doing civil litigation, but I always knew that I wanted to go into public interest work eventually. Uh, I took a few steps to get there, but in 2012, I left and uh, started my own firm and was doing appeals, criminal appeals for indigent criminal defendants, and did that for quite a while. I was introduced to Ryan when he was the head of juvenile appeals for CPCS, which is the Indigent Criminal Defense Committee in Massachusetts, and started doing juvenile appeals and really ever since then have focused my practice predominantly on working with either juvenile offenders or people who are now adults who were juveniles when they offended. You must have this massive ability to block the emotion that goes with working with juveniles because I can't even imagine what some of the cases that you've taken on and and maybe someday we'll get you back and we can talk about some of those. Where did where did parole fall into all of this? So parole came into play a little bit later. I started doing parole work during the, just at the very beginning of the pandemic. I took my first parole case and it interested me because 
the people who are entitled to representation or were entitled to representation at that time on parole were people who committed their crimes as juveniles and were sentenced to life imprisonment. So my first client was significantly older than I am, um, but he had committed his crime when he was a young person and had been incarcerated since then. So it was really the next step in the juvenile representation for me. So he wasn't a juvenile. He had just committed his crime as a juvenile. Correct. He committed his crime as a juvenile and has been incarcerated, had been incarcerated for decades at this time. He, He was tried as an adult even back then, but the procedure was completely different back in the early 80s. There were these things called bind-over hearings or transfer hearings, has a slightly different meaning these days. But at that time, what would happen is a juvenile court judge would decide whether the case was sufficiently bad that it should be tried as an adult, basically. And so he was tried as an adult, even though he was a juvenile at the time. So Ryan, I'm going to jump over to you. You were one of the litigators with Paul Rudolph from the firm that were instrumental in getting the new ruling passed about juveniles under the age of 21 that couldn't be sentenced to life in prison. So Ryan, how is it possible that in 2020, 2021, Melissa was on a parole case Mm with someone who was incarcerated prior to being 21 years old, and this new SJC law had not been passed. Okay, so there was a previous SJC decision that said that for people who are under the age of 18 with the time of their offenses, that life without parole was unconstitutional for them. And then what the SJC recently did was they changed the age. They found that 18 is not the cutoff, the proper constitutional cutoff, but rather it's 21. So it's taking that, what was a 2013 decision, saying that life without parole was unconstitutional for people we typically think of as juveniles, people under the age of 18, and based on all the new scientific developments, extending that to the age of 21. So let's dig in on parole, because we all watch Perry Mason and NCIS <laughs> and all these shows, and we see parole hearings. But I think they're very exaggerated, or they're not drilled down on to what the real thing is. And, and I want to do that on today's show. So Melissa, let's jump back to you. First of all, how do you get engaged with someone who's incarcerated to become their attorney for a parole hearing? So by and large, people who are incarcerated are indigent, and they will get their counsel appointed through the Committee for Public Counsel Services. We call that CPCS. That is the organization in Massachusetts. It's a governmental organization. It's a committee, so it doesn't belong to any one of the three branches of government. And And it compiles people who need counsel and puts them in touch with appropriate counsel. They appoint counsel. So I'm not a public defender because I don't work full time for the state, but I do public defense work uh, as a private counsel. So I'm, I'm paid by the state and I'm appointed by the state. So I'm not actually sure if it comes from the Department of Correction. I believe it comes directly from the parole board, but the parole board will inform CPCS that someone needs counsel and CPCS will then appoint someone. 
And to be clear, not everyone who is eligible for parole is eligible for an attorney for parole. So you were just talking to Ryan about his case. There are many people who are entitled to parole. In Massachusetts, our sentences are of indeterminate length. So, you know, you hear people getting a five to 10 year sentence, a seven to nine year sentence or whatever. That means that lower number is when the person is eligible for parole. By and large, people who are eligible for parole for what those we call term of year sentences, by and large, they are not entitled to um, representation at their parole hearings. And their parole hearings are different than the parole hearings that Brian and Paul secured for 18, 19, and 20-year-olds and also anyone serving life sentences. People serving life sentences are entitled to a significantly more robust parole hearing. So that's when people are entitled to counsel, when they are serving life sentences and are going for hearings in front of the full parole board. I say that, let me back up and say that when you're serving a life sentence, your parole hearing is in front of the full parole board, which is a seven-member seven panel if it's fully staffed, which as of yesterday, it was not. It was only still six people. If you have a term of year sentence, that five to seven or seven to nine or whatever, the hearing is different. You only see three parole board members, two parole board members, and they meet you at the facility that you're housed in where you're incarcerated. You get your decision right off the bat, right at the end of the hearing. So it's it's different for the lifers. Wow. Okay. I did a lot. Yeah, no, it is. And this is why I wanted to have this conversation today. So Ryan, give us the type of people that sit on a parole board, the two to three for that terms of, of your sentence versus a full six to seven parole board panel. Where do they come from? How are they? I think they're elected from what we talked about last week. Uh, how does it all come together? They're actually appointed by the governor and then they're confirmed by the governor's council. And, and it's the same people. There's seven members of the parole board. They just all have to sit for life or hearings together. And then for people who are not serving life sentences, they like randomly pick a subset of that set, those seven people. You hear those cases. Yeah, and those non-life sentence hearings take 15 minutes. Well, life sentence hearings take two hours, even longer. And they really get into the details of everything about the person's life, about how they've done in, in prison, about their offense. They're much more detailed. So what are the backgrounds? So they've gotten better. They used to be mostly former prosecutors in law enforcement. And in more recent years, there've become more people with you know psychological backgrounds as psychologists, former probation officer who actually had a very good reputation as a probation officer, is really caring about her probationers. And they've become a little more diverse and history of experience. Are there any educators? Not as far as I know. There's a defense attorney. I think that the best parole members, in my opinion and experience, are people who have insight into the human experience you know, so I think that having people with background in psychology or at least an openness to that make for better parole board members because the real question for a parole board member is, is this person safe to be released into the community? And you can imagine that if you have a parole board that's made up of 
all prosecutors or former prosecutors or law enforcement professionals, their life outlook and their view on safety and what makes a society safe is only one viewpoint. And I think that, you know, oftentimes if we're focused specifically on law enforcement's perspective, that leads to a heavier hand in terms of incarceration, which I think is open for debate whether that is actually what keeps society safe. It's also fascinating to me. So let's drill down a little bit on the terms of the year sentences, and then we're going to have to take a break. And when we come back, we can talk. I want to talk a little bit more detail about the life sentences and what that parole hearing looks like and sounds like, if that's possible. So you're in with someone who's done their five years or whatever their plea deal was. So do you bring paperwork? Do you bring letters of recommendation? Do you bring the fact that they have housing and family to help them reenter society and the community? How does all that play out? So with the terms of years, it is a very short process. You are physically sitting in the visiting room of a prison. The two or three parole board members come in and they see just person after person after person. So I can imagine being in Sousa Baranowski, which has this bank of little cubicles where you can sit across from your client and the whole row will be filled with people waiting to see the parole board. And you're basically just in line. And in there, you know, it's usually just the parole board having a conversation. Maybe the attorney's written a letter in advance, but you can't have any witnesses. You're not really permitted to bring anyone in. It's a conversation to try, again, to figure out if this person is safe to release into society. And then the person steps out after a relatively brief conversation and the members make a decision right there. They call them back in. They say yes or no. And then you go along your way. The whole thing lasts maybe 20 minutes, maybe half an hour pretty short. What if it's a split decision? I mean, you said there could be as little as two members that are doing these parole hearings. So that's a good question. And actually, I don't know the answer because I think they work it themselves out before you get called back in. I would imagine that if there is a split decision, the no is going to lead the day. Yeah. And and one thing that I guess I should emphasize is not only are you not entitled to a lawyer for these hearings, you're not allowed to have one, even if you wanted to hire your own lawyer. So we've never been to one. We'll go in for revocation hearings, which are similar when somebody has been revoked, when their parole has been revoked. But right, the original hearing is just the individual that maybe has met with their attorney in advance to prep themselves. Even when an attorney is present at a parole hearing for the lifer panel, it's the person's show. It's not the attorney, unlike when you're in court. This is a great example of somewhere where I think there could be some important reform is at least giving people, you know, if they can hire a lawyer, let them have a lawyer there with them. It helps rather than hinders the process. It gives the parole board better and more information to make their decision. And I think it should be welcomed rather than excluded, which is the current rule. And on that note, we're going to take a quick break. Melissa and Ryan, if you could hang out, listeners, grab another cup of coffee. And you're listening to this week, The Hustler Files. Hello, this is Glenn Sexton. Superintendent and Special Sheriff of the Hampshire County Sheriff's Office and Correctional Center located in Northampton, Massachusetts. If you are considering a career in the field of corrections and public safety, as well as working for an agency that prides itself on integrity, dedication, and professionalism, then please visit our website, HampshireSheriffs.com. 
We currently have open positions in security, health services, counseling, treatment, and education. Thank you. We look forward to hearing from you. Welcome back to this week's The Hustler Files. I'm Lisa Riley, and if you're just joining us, we're here this week with attorneys Melissa Chelly and Ryan Schiff. They are both longtime advocates and litigators for justice-involved individuals, and today we're delving into the unfamiliar process for many of us of parole. So, Melissa and Ryan, welcome back, and thank you again for, for joining us and helping us understand this proceeding that is such an integral part of our criminal justice justice system. I know you both been involved with parole hearings for lifers, and that's the longer version. It's two to three hours. It has a parole board of six to seven members that are appointed by the governor. Ryan, you said that it's in this case, unlike being in a trial, the lawyers really sort of take the back seat and are more the directors and not the actors. So the, the parole board is understandably less interested in hearing what we have to say about their rehabilitation and hearing it for themselves. So they really want to have a conversation with the person and see what kind of insight they have into how they've changed over the course of their years of incarceration. Because for people serving life sentences, this is at least 15 years after the time of their offense. So in some cases, it's decades that have gone by and really radical changes in who the person is. And it gives, you know, it's both an opportunity for the parole board to get to know the client and also for the client to really demonstrate how they've changed and talk to them about it. So our job as a lawyer is not to go in there and give a great presentation and be super persuasive. It is an opportunity for us to help prepare our clients to be able to be persuasive themselves. And then we also get to put on witnesses, also helping our clients to pick which people in their lives they want to have go talk to the parole board and then helping those people to prepare. And in some cases where we can get funds or the family has money to hire somebody, having an expert, a psychologist usually who can go evaluate the clients, see if they have any kind of mental health disorders that might need to be accommodated in some way, or just to do a risk evaluation and determine whether they can go and live out in the community without causing any problems. Melissa, in whatever way you can, walk us through sort of that prep process, like how far in advance are we talking years that they know this hearing's coming up, and do they have access? I know a lot of prisons have libraries with legal documentation that incarcerated individuals can go do research on their own and start prepping for their parole hearing. How does that all come together? Yeah, so I would venture a guess that if you walked into a prison and asked any individual in there when their parole eligibility date is, they could give it to you to the day. So they know from years and years in advance. With a juvenile lifer hearing, CPCS tries to appoint counsel three years in advance, though that doesn't always happen. But when it does, it can be very, very gratifying. As Ryan said, we're talking about decades of incarceration. But what he didn't say is we're also necessarily talking about people who are very young when they were incarcerated. And so if you have someone who is incarcerated at the age of 15, then they're going through many, many, many changes over the course of their 15 years before parole eligibility and even in the three years of representing them, they're still changing really immensely. So if you get a client at 27 and they're just not too far out of their adolescent years and to watch them grow from 27 to 30 and help them identify programming in prison that would benefit them, help them to 
talk about their offense and ways that they've changed because you know you're still talking about young people even at 27 to 30 you know obviously they're adults at this point but they're still very much working their way through their personality and the ways that they've changed over the past decade or more of their life. So much of our representation starts with just having conversations with them, working out ways that they've changed since their 15-year-old self committed the crime that that they're incarcerated for. Then, as Ryan said, we'll seek funds for expert representation, and those experts can be psychologists, social workers who can help us to identify programming outside of the prison that might help them. And then it really is a lot about helping them to write their life stories. They have to write their autobiography. They have to write their version of the crime. So there's a lot of writing involved and just a lot of teasing through their background. And so that is really where I spend the bulk of my time when I'm representing people who are going to be appearing in front of the parole board. I would think personally that having to write all of this brings up a lot of emotional baggage. It certainly does. It definitely does. And that is what I really, I have to say I love about the parole practice from my perspective is getting to know these men, and by and large they are men, who have made such tremendous changes in their life and helping them to work through what was a very, very difficult thing. Obviously, they've committed a horrible crime or they wouldn't be in this situation. And many times no one knows how horrible a thing they did better than they know themselves. And they are, by and large, incredibly remorseful and have made massive changes in their lives and in their personalities in a way that people who are not incarcerated, who have not done a horrible thing, who have not been through this experience that they've been through, I can say don't change. You know, the the difference between a 15-year-old and a 30-year-old is massive even on the outside, but you can see the trajectory that someone's on at 15 often. These men have been on one trajectory and have completely changed in a way that many people don't. And it's very, you know, I can't think of a better word than gratifying to to get to know them and to be able to help them and to watch them flourish as they recognize what made them offend in the beginning and all of the ways that they've changed and are you know ready to be released into society. Yes, I think some of the most fascinating and extraordinary people I've met and probably exist out there are people who are in prison serving life sentences, especially for things that happened when they're adolescents. Everyone that I've met experienced an extraordinarily traumatic childhood. Then they committed a horrific act that got them sent to prison. And then before they ever had an opportunity to do any of the normal things that we all do as adults, go grocery shopping, have a job, children, have long-term relationships, all that's been cut off. And they've been isolated from society where they have spent time trying to make themselves better people. And a lot of them become extraordinarily well-read read way more books than most of us, or maybe any of us, read outside of prison, and become, in some ways, the most worldly people I know. They've read more, they've thought more about the world, and in, at the same time, more isolated, cut off from the rest of society, not able to have the normal kinds of responsibilities of adulthood. And it really makes for the relationships that you get to form with your clients are extraordinary. 
amazing people. Couple of questions because we're going to run out of time, sadly. So let's say someone has three years to prepare. Do they literally just obsess about how to get their parole approved and they spend three years digging and working and writing? So I would say in the beginning of that three-year process, it is very slowly ramping up. And in the beginning, you're more kind of looking ahead and seeing what can you do over the next three years? You haven't gotten your GED. Maybe now's the time that you start studying for your GED. You know, you haven't, say, done a restorative justice type program. Maybe now is the time that you look into a restorative justice type program. Let's see what's out there. And by the way, let's also start doing a little daydreaming about what you want your life to look like if you are ultimately released from prison. Do you want to be in the greater Boston area where you were living originally or wherever you had been? Or do you want to, you know, where do you want to be? Do you have family on the outside? You know, what kinds of things do you want to do? Do you want to get a job? You want to be a barber? Can you get your barber's license while you're in prison? So it's really planning in those early days. And then as you get closer, you start talking more specifically about parole and ways that you can best prepare for the hearing, you know, and that's when you start doing the writing. Though some of my clients do require a lot longer, takes a lot of time and, and effort to focus your attention into writing this narrative. So sometimes I'll get scraps, you know, I'll get a memory here, a anecdote there that we have to then put together and that can take a long time. But it really starts ramping up, I would say, in the last year or six months prior to their hearing, where you start saying, how are you going to talk about your crime now? What are you going to say to the parole board when they ask you, why did you do this? So that's the sort of trajectory that my representation takes. That is an amazing litany of what this looks like. I think it really helps us understand what this process is. And sadly, we are out of time, but I have to ask my final questions. I asked Ryan last week, so I'll go to you second. But Melissa, you don't know I'm coming at you with this, but it's easy. I believe we all have life assignments and they can change. What do you think your life assignment is? Ooh, a life assignment. I mean, right now, I have done a lot of things before I went to law school and before I became a lawyer, and I felt like I kind of lucked into falling into what I actually think is my life assignment. And I know it sounds Pollyanna-ish, but I do think that I am doing right now the work that I am called to do. Between that and raising my kids, that's about what I got. Well, I think it's amazing, and I can totally see why your clients would absolutely love you because you're kind and patient, and I think that's really important when you're working with people who have had these kind of criminal justice-involved lives. And Ryan, anything changed since last week? Did, did oh, you gosh. think about your life assignment a little deeper? Well, I definitely last time talked about just in terms of work, but also this kind of thing that I've taken on as my professional life and that I do want to continue to try to get as many of the people who were sentenced to life for crimes that occurred when they were adolescents out of prison. But I suppose I also want to just be a good, decent person. And Melissa made me feel that I forgot about three really important people in my life, which is my three kids, and hopefully raising them to be good, decent people who will help other people and try to make the world a better place. Well, as parents, and I can speak from that too, that is our ultimate goal. Listeners, we have to wrap up in a minute, but don't go anywhere. We will be right back with the rest of this week's The Hustler Files. 
Join the Hamden County Sheriff's Office medical team. We offer professional medical and mental health care during and after incarceration, following a revered public health model. We're hiring for nursing and supervisory roles, offering a less hectic case than hospitals, a state pension, benefits, and potential retirement after 20 years. Our firm but fair approach to corrections has been emulated nationwide. We're not your average law enforcement agency. Visit our website to learn more. We are back. And this week's thoughts come from Young Pueblo, being grateful for today. So often we spend our time living for tomorrow, eagerly seeking results that can only come with a slow buildup of consistent effort, especially in regard to our own personal transformation. We forget that building new ways of being does not come quickly or with ease. A sturdy temple of peace with a strong foundation that can withstand storms does not appear overnight. Every breath we take happens in the present. Every advancement in our growth happens in the present. And that's a wrap on another week of The Hustler Files. You can find all of our shows on the WHMP podcast page, or you can find us on any of your favorite podcast networks. Have a wonderful week ahead, and remember, don't be ashamed of your story. It will inspire others. See you next week right here on The Hustler Files. (laughs) 